And we sing uh, rightly that the cross has said that we are not failures, and yet at the same time, uh, we have to be reminded that the cross was necessary because we had failed. Uh, we were failures. That's who we were apart from Jesus Christ. But God, in his grace and his mercy and his kindness, he saw us in our failure and he didn't resign us to our failure. He sent us Jesus. And because of this, Romans 8.1 says, church, there is how much condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ? There's none. There's none whatsoever. All because of what Jesus has done for us. So, Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you that through him, through our advocate, the lies of the accuser have been silenced. Father, we thank you that we have undergone a change of identity. We are no longer children of wrath. We are the sons and daughters and heirs of a heavenly king. We thank you that there is no condemnation for those who have called on the name of your son, Jesus, to be saved. So, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, as we submit ourselves to its authority and its power in our lives, Father, we just ask that you would sanctify us in the truth of your word because your word is truth. Father, use your word to edify your church, to glorify your name, to show us your son, Jesus, and to make us more like him. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. 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 You can go ahead and have a seat. And um, as you're, you're finding your seats this morning, just before I, I jump into things, I want to mention just very, very briefly. So I'm going to get in trouble for this. Uh, Ron Logan, who just did our scripture reading a few moments ago, uh, and his wife, Algeretta, they're both sitting right up here so that everyone will awkwardly look at them. Um, Ron, this week, thank you so much, Ron, number one, for the challenge and encouragement you gave us. Ron, this week, is not just celebrating a birthday. He and Algeretta today are celebrating 29 years of being married. So can we just celebrate them together as a church family? And, um, man, I just want to be able to say how much I love both of you, and we just so appreciate how you have loved us. Thank you for your faithfulness to each other, um, because your marriage is a display of the gospel. Thank you for how you love and serve this church, and uh, we are better because you're here, and we are more like Christ because we're here, and we appreciate you so much. So, um, so as you, uh, again, as we are having our seats, finding our seats this morning, I invite you to turn with your Bible. Titus chapter 3 is where we're going to be going together in our time uh, today, and if you're with us today for the first time, the last several weeks, um, we've been studying the book of Titus verse by verse, and we're closing that up this morning, looking at chapter three. Um, so uh, Titus chapter three, we're going to cover the entire chapter together this morning, and we're bringing uh, this message series today to a close. Um, over Labor Day weekend, I had the opportunity to travel to Washington, D.C. I was preaching at a church in the Stafford, Virginia area, and uh, I'd only been to Washington, D.C. once in my life up to this point. That was on the eighth grade field trip 20-some-odd years ago, and really wasn't paying attention while I was there, so don't remember a whole lot about it. And as we were getting into D.C. airspace, the captain let us know that things were a little bit backed up, and we were going to be circling around until it was our turn to land. And uh, so I knew that we were in the vicinity, at least, of Washington, D.C., but not having really any sort of familiarity, couldn't have just, you know, looked down and pinpointed exactly where we were. And more than that, it was uh, an overcast day. It was pretty cloudy. So I know that we're in proximity. We're in the relative airspace of D.C., but we're circling, circling, can't really see anything. Well, then uh, finally, after a few minutes, it was time for us to land, and we broke through the clouds in our final descent. And those of you who've flown into D.C., you've probably seen this. It's, it's an amazing view if you get the right runway. And so I looked to my left, and, man, I'm looking straight down the National Mall and the Washington Monument and you know, just looking around different landmarks. I can see the Capitol. And, again, I, I've, I'm a total tourist in this moment because I've never seen this from the air 
And so I was that obnoxious guy, like got my phone out and I'm like looking on this window and I'm, I'm trying to get it on that window and get pictures and zoom in. And, and what was unclear to me became clear the moment that we broke through the clouds. And uh, the book of Titus in many ways is, is the same. We started out five weeks ago, kind of in the theological clouds, right? We started in Titus one with the doctrine of election. It's one of the most confusing doctrines in all of scripture. We saw that it is equal parts mystery and controversy, that God is both sovereign and man is responsible. It is God who in eternity past, who has sovereignly chosen and called and elected and foreknown and predestined uh, those who will be saved. And yet mankind is still totally responsible for recognizing our sin and calling on the name of Jesus for our salvation. And we saw how, again, that tension is really just not gonna be relieved this side of eternity. As Spurgeon said, those two crisscross at the throne of Jesus and one day we'll see him face to face and we'll finally understand how all that works. So we started out in the clouds. And it's really easy to ask the question, okay, how do these high doctrinal theological concepts, what on earth do they have to do with my life in the here and now? We've uh, reiterated this point over and over for the last five weeks, how a gospel doctrine produces a gospel culture. We reflected on the words of Ray Ortland, how if we're not careful, we will as a church unsay by our culture what we say in our doctrine. So a healthy church is not just marked by its orthodoxy being the message that it preaches. A healthy church is also marked by orthopraxy which emphasizes the way that we live our lives. And so today what we're gonna do is we're coming out of the clouds and we're gonna do theology on the ground. What was unclear to us a few weeks ago, we're now gonna see the full practical implications for us in the here and now as followers of Jesus Christ. So again, started in the clouds uh, five weeks ago, landing to do theology on the ground here today. Uh, it was John Stott in his work, The Message of the Sermon on the Mount, who wrote, probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. As we press deeper into the gospel and as we press deeper into our knowledge and understanding of who Christ is, church, we're not just learning something new, we are becoming something new. And what made the first century church so attractive and so compelling and, and so magnetic to a lost and broken and dying world, it wasn't as much the truths that it was preaching as much as the community that it was becoming. What they saw was a compelling picture of community where people from all different walks of life, from different ethnic and cultural and political backgrounds even, laid down their secondary differences to pick up their primary identity as followers of Jesus Christ. And when we as followers of Christ preach the gospel but don't practice the gospel, we actually show that we don't have the gospel. For us to be a truly healthy church, we have to not just know it in our heads, we have to believe it in our hearts, and we have to live it in our hands. That's what Titus chapter 3 is all about. It shows us practically as the body of believers what it means to live out the doctrine that we believe. So what we're going to see today in Titus 3 is a picture of healthy gospel culture. So if you're following along in your notes this morning, our overview here and what we're going to see in these few verses is that the gospel continually reminds us of who we were apart from Jesus Christ. The gospel continually reminds us of who we were apart from Jesus Christ. When we forget who we were apart from Christ, we will not be Christ-like in our treatment of one another. 
We continually forget who we were apart from Jesus. So the gospel reminds us of this. And as we remember the grace and the love and the mercy that God has poured out on us through Jesus, we're motivated then to joyfully carry out the good works that God's planned for us to do. And we're motivated to demonstrate the same love and kindness that Christ has shown to us, uh, to a watching and dying and unbelieving world. Gospel doctrine will produce gospel culture. And we're gonna see a picture of that culture in Titus chapter three today. So let's start out together uh, reading verses one and two from Titus three. Paul starts out this chapter saying, remind them. Now hang on to those two words because we're gonna come back to them in just a moment. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Back in verse one, the first two words of chapter three, Paul says, remind them. Now, why does Paul have these words, remind them? Well, the reason why Paul writes to Titus, remind them of these things is because it shows us these are things you and I as followers of Christ are prone to forget. You and I suffer from what you could call a uh, gospel amnesia. Like we, we, it is so easy. It, it never ceases to amaze me. I'm, I'm seeing it kind of from a different angle. You're hearing it, I'm preaching it. But even from my angle, it never ceases to amaze me how easy it is to preach it on a Sunday, to hear it on a Sunday, to amen it on a Sunday, and then live totally opposite of that Monday through Saturday. Like it's, it's like, like as soon as we step through the door, that there's some sort of portal that we have passed through that causes us to forget everything that we just heard. And we just so quickly drift back into our patterns of sin. We suffer from this gospel amnesia. We not only forget who we are, we forget whose we are. We forget who we are and we forget who we belong to as followers of Christ. And I think if we're just being completely honest, most of us as followers of Jesus, we don't need to come in here every single week and just learn some revolutionary new truth that we've never heard before as much as we need to learn to be obedient with the things that we've already heard. If we're just being perfectly honest with each other, I would argue that most of us are probably educated far beyond our obedience level. And that what we need most is not some deep new revelatory truth, but we need to learn to be obedient with what God has revealed to us in his word. If we are not living in our lives, the truths that we claim to believe, then we show that we've not truly understood the gospel. And so what Paul does here in chapter three is he gives us about a dozen different directives that show us how it is that we can build and sustain a healthy gospel culture. Now, if you've already looked ahead in your note sheet this morning, uh, you're probably concerned because you noticed that I have 12 points today. And let's be fair, church, I'm long-winded, right? And so I know some of you are very concerned right now. You're already canceling your lunch plans. There's no need to do that. I promise you first service, we got out on time. This is gonna be okay. We are gonna move very quickly here, but I want this to be as practical and simple as it can be. This is exposition in its purest form today, that this is just what the word of God has shown us about how it is you and I build and sustain a healthy gospel culture. So the first thing that we see this morning from verse one is that building a gospel culture means being submissive to rulers and authorities. Paul says in verse one, remind them, we are prone to forget this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. There's a historian Polybius who said that Cretans were always engaged in insurrection and murder and assassination of uh, those who were part of the Roman Empire. Very similar, 1 Timothy chapter 2, the apostle Paul instructs Timothy to offer prayer for those in authority. 
It's Peter who reminds the believers to honor the emperor. And church, just to make sure we understand the context here, roughly mid-60s AD, it was Nero who was the emperor in Rome at this time. If you are not familiar with Nero, he had such a deep hatred for followers of Jesus Christ. He used to round up Christians, cover them in tar, and then slowly burn them to death as candles in his garden. And the apostle Paul says, you honor him. We're to be submissive to them. We're to pray for them. And listen, we have, I think, almost no framework for this in the 21st century. Like we think that just because we disagree with someone politically, we have absolutely no responsibility to them whatsoever. We disagree, we're angry, we, we build up this, this hatred that, that's in our heart. We, we need to be reminded that we're to honor those who are in positions of authority. We're to submit to those who are in positions of authority. We're to pray for those who are in submission, uh, positions of authority. And listen, just to make sure we're, we're in the, on the same page here, just like the first century church, uh, the cry of our day is not Caesar is Lord. The cry of the day is still Jesus is Lord. And so we understand as followers of Christ that our submission to governing authorities goes up to the point that they are asking us to compromise our faith as followers of Christ. So if we're being uh, commanded to go against the word of God, being commanded to go against the teachings of Jesus, being threatened if we uphold the truth of the gospel, it is in that moment we re we're reminded that our ultimate master is not the king, but Jesus himself. And so we submit ultimately to him, but up to the point that we are being asked to compromise our faith, our calling as followers of Christ in a healthy gospel culture is to honor those in positions of authority, to submit to them and to pray for them. When's the last time you prayed for your governing officials? When's the last time you prayed for that politician that you can't stand, the member of Congress that you can't stand, the person in the Oval Office that you can't stand? When is the last time you got on your knees to plead for them to Almighty God? This is our calling as followers of Jesus and a healthy gospel culture will pray and honor those who are in positions of authority. Second, a healthy gospel culture will be obedient to the word. Now again, uh, context here is obedience to governing authorities. So it's obedience to governing authorities as instructed to us and commanded to us in the word. These were the words of Jesus in John chapter 14. He reminds his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And understand, the words of Jesus here, this is not an ultimatum. This is a promise. This is not Jesus saying, hey, if you keep all commandments, then I will show my love to you. That, that's not how this works. What he's saying when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, which is if we truly love Christ, if our hearts are truly united to Jesus Christ, then the natural overflow of our lives is that we will joyfully obey what his word commands. This is the natural response to followers of Jesus. And so it's not an ultimatum, it's a promise. We're not driven to submit to authorities and to pray for authorities and to honor authorities out of guilt. We're driven to do this by grace because the same grace and kindness has been poured out to us in Jesus Christ. Tim Keller has said it like this. I think he said it really, really well. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. But Christianity says, I am accepted therefore I obey. That's what's different for us. It is not guilt that's driving us to obedience. It's the grace of God that's been shown us on Jesus Christ. This is what we mean by theology on the ground. The grace that was poured out on you in eternity past by Jesus, even when you were an enemy of him, this is the type of grace we're called to model and to show to others in the present. Third, Paul shows us that we should be ready to do good works. A healthy gospel culture should be marked by what we could call an ethical readiness. 
We are eager and prepared to do what is good. And listen, this provides our boundaries in our relationship to the state. We are eager to do what is good, meaning we will not do whatever is evil. And so again, that's where we get our clarification. We honor and submit up to the point that it requires us doing something evil. So we're eager to do what is good, not with what's evil. So again, that's our relationship to governing authorities, influences outside the church. Now Paul turns our attention to relationships with each other inside of the church. And we're shown uh, fourth, as followers of Christ inside the body of believers, we should speak evil of no one. We saw a couple weeks ago uh, that that word slander comes from the same word as devil. So slander is literally devilish speech. To speak slander against a brother or sister in Christ is to speak with the mouth of Satan himself. Satan is known to us all through scripture as the accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren where Christ is our advocate who is pleading our case. It is Satan who is the accuser. And there is no greater threat to a healthy gospel culture than slander and gossip within the body of Christ. Church, listen to me. It is a cancer. And the only way we get rid of cancer within the body of Christ is by thoroughly applying the radiation of the gospel, or as we'll see here in a few moments, cutting it out and removing it from the body. There's a place for this. We're to speak evil of no one, to speak slander or gossip against a brother or sister in Christ. If we're just being perfectly honest, it's a subtle form of heresy because what we're doing in that moment is we are desecrating the image of God in man. We need to be reminded that every human being is an image bearer. We bear the image of God. Every human being, every single one of us, we have, we have the image of God imprinted on us. And this is what John has written in 1 John 4.20. He says, if anyone says, I love God. So again, you've got the doctrinal part right. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. There's no greater threat to healthy gospel culture, to the unity of believers than gossip and slander in the body of Christ. We should speak evil of no one. We should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We should be doing what Paul encourages the church in Rome to do, which is as much as it is possible, as much as it depends on us, we work to live at peace with all. So we speak evil of no one. Fifth, Paul also says us that we should avoid quarreling. So not only are we to avoid speaking evil against one another, we're to avoid being argumentative with one another. Now, uh, understand this morning, every single church has drama, amen? amen? This church has drama, the church you came from has drama, the perfect church that exists in your mind but doesn't actually exist, that church has drama too. You've got it in your mind, I just need to get out of this church to get away from all the drama. I'm sorry, you're going to have to get away from the church altogether. You're never going to find it. And if you don't believe me, just read the New Testament, okay? Like, have you read First and Second Corinthians? Y'all, those people were crazy. Like, you think you came from a bad church? You think you, you've had, those people were absolutely nuts. And, and listen, that's a lot of the reason why the New Testament epistles are written. In many cases, Paul and Peter and John and James and Jude, they're writing these things to correct everything that's wrong. Like there's, there's no perfect Christian, there's no perfect church. And so this is gonna be the ongoing pattern for every church for all of history, just in constant need of, repo- of reform. So we, we understand that all churches will experience some drama, but here's the distinction. Healthy churches will dispel the drama. We won't allow this to fester. We won't allow division and gossip and slander. We won't allow just constant divisiveness and arguing and quarreling. We're not gonna allow these things to exist within the body of Christ because it maligns the name of Jesus Christ. Six, Paul shows us that we should be gentle. 
Now, I want to speak uh, to men in particular when, when it comes to this, because you know, this is a word I think a lot of us, if we're, we're being honest, makes us kind of uncomfortable. Be gentle. You know, we hear that, we're like, man, can, can I get like a be strong, be courageous, be bold, stand up, you know, fight, fight for what's right. Like that, that appeals maybe to some of us more than, than anything, but we, we need to be reminded again that even Jesus himself, Matthew 11, we are told that he is gentle and lowly in heart. In the kingdom of Jesus Christ, gentleness is not weakness, it's strength. In a world that is full of hatred, this is the counterculture of the church. We're gentle and lowly. What it means that we're gentle, church, is that we do not make it unnecessarily difficult for people to follow Jesus. We will not bear or build unnecessary burdens for people to carry on their journey towards Christ. In their steps with Jesus, as they're walking daily in discipleship, what we need to be striving to do as a body of believers is to be like a nursing mother with a newborn child seeking to rock that baby to sleep. We should with new believers, we should with each other as followers of Christ, as gently and lovingly and graciously as we can. We need to be rocking one another into the rest of the arms of Jesus. A healthy church, a healthy gospel culture will be full of people who are gentle with one another. Seventh, maybe the most important one that we're going to look at today, show perfect courtesy to all people. Show perfect courtesy to all people. I listened to a a sermon from Matt Chandler a few weeks ago that he had preached, I think, out in Colorado somewhere. And I know this clip has made a lot of rounds, and it's it's pretty comical the way that he addressed this. He said, you know, if we're just being perfectly honest uh, right now when it comes to relational interactions with each other, he said, you know, the bar in our culture is actually kind of low. Like the the bar, the way he said it, he was like, you know, the bar in our culture right now is, is way down here, and it's basically, hey, don't be a jerk. And by not acting like jerks, people look at us, they're like, hey, something's different about them. I mean, that, that's just kind of how we are. Like anybody else feel like everybody, I mean, just our nation and, and everybody, like we are just collectively, it feels like everybody's just ready to snap right now. Like everybody's just kind of walking on edge. It's been a very difficult couple of years. I mean, we are eager to just unload on each other. Now, I'm a big manners person. Like just, you know, a lot of this is just how I was raised. And, and I was raised like you hold doors open for people. And I was also raised when somebody holds the door open for him that you say, thank you. This is one of my biggest pet peeves, y'all. Like I'll hold a door open for someone and they'll just pass right through that door. I mean, just passing right through that door, probably on speakerphone, rude by the way. I mean, they'll just keep walking, just keep walking and won't say it like a terrorist. They won't even say a word. You know what I'm feeling in that moment? I'm not feeling perfect courtesy. What I want to do is be like, you're welcome. Paul says, no, we we show perfect courtesy to all, even when they don't show it to us. And by doing this, we reflect the love of Jesus Christ, who again, showed courtesy to us. He showed kindness to us, even when we were enemies of him. Now, here's what happens in verses three through eight. What Paul does here for just a moment is is he uh, pauses for what we could call just a, a brief gospel commercial break. Okay, so this has been very practical up to this point. So, hey, do this, don't do this, focus on this, don't allow this to happen, just kind of a a list. And and we we gravitate towards some of those things. We like having that checklist of, hey, show me what to do and, and what not to do. But what Paul does here in verses three through eight is he reminds us of the glue that holds it all together. He reminds us of the message of the gospel. So when we look at all this and and we just kind of in our hearts, we want to resist 
Say, well, why should I be submissive to rulers and authorities? Why should I be obedient? Why should I be ready to do good works? Why can't I speak evil of people when they frustrate me? Why should I avoid quarreling? Why should I be gentle? Why should I show perfect courtesy to anyone? Here's why the answer that we get in verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish. Why do we do all these things even towards people who are driving us nuts? For we ourselves were once foolish. And he reminds us of the gospel. He reminds us of who we were apart from Jesus. We ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Here's the difference maker. This is the good news announcement. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he had poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you, he says to Titus, to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So eighth, Paul shows us we need to continually remember the gospel. A healthy gospel culture will continually remember the gospel. We need the reminder of who we were because we forget this. Church, we continually need the reminder that before Jesus, you were not a mostly good person who just needed to get better. You were a completely dead person who needed to be made alive. That's who we were apart from Jesus. We were not his friends. We were his enemies. He didn't need you. Like he wasn't the great recruiter just hoping he could find some people to help him. It is completely a work and a miracle of grace that we are who we are today. Apart from Christ, we were foolish, we were disobedient, we were led astray, we were slaves to our passions and pleasures, we were full of malice and envy, we were hated by others, we were hating each other. God did not save you because of who you were, but in spite of who you were. This is what it means that he's grace. This is what it means that he's mercy. But we suffer from this gospel amnesia. We don't just forget who we are, we forget who we were. And when we forget who we were, we will not treat others the way that Christ calls us to treat others. We are called to show others the same grace, the same mercy, the same kindness, the same treatment that God has shown us in Christ. He saved us. He saved us. And it wasn't because of our works. He saved us by his work. We were shown mercy. We were regenerated and renewed by the power of his Holy Spirit. We are justified by grace. We are heirs to his kingdom. And because of this, we devote ourselves to good works. We don't do these good works. We don't embrace this and uphold this in a gospel culture. We don't do good works to be saved. We do these things because we are saved. This is the natural overflow of those who are followers of Christ. So now verse nine, Paul returns us to the regular scheduled programming. Back to healthy gospel culture. Here's how we actually develop this and sustain it within the church. Uh, Verse nine, let's read this together. Actually, we're just going to read the rest of the chapter here, verses 9 through 15. He says, but avoid foolish controversies. So again, this is a different sermon for a different day. He doesn't say avoid controversy because we've seen the last couple weeks, the gospel at times will be controversial. He does clarify avoid foolish controversies. Genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. Why? For they are unprofitable and worthless. 
As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on, the, Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. In verse 14, this is important. And let our people learn. So again, we have to be taught this. This is something we have to learn as followers of Jesus. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace and peace be with you all. So ninth, building, sustaining, healthy gospel culture. How do we do this? Ninth, Paul shows us, avoid foolish controversies. Now again, we're not told many specifics about uh, exactly what these controversies entailed. Again, we're told that they're uh, over genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. We're really not given any specific details beyond that. But what we are told is that they are the types of divisions and dissensions that were unprofitable and worthless. Basically says, hey, th this is just a waste of time to focus on these things. And, and this is one of the marks of unhealthy gospel culture. Is it just marked by a constant quarreling over secondary things? So um, we as a staff, uh, we did this little exercise together this past Tuesday. We've um, started reading this book by Wayne Grudem. It's called Christian Beliefs, which is a really great foundational resource. If you just really want to grow in your understanding of doctrine, theology, it's easy to read short chapters. And we're reading that together and like to do these things occasionally just to, to re-solidify our doctrinal theological foundations and to make sure we're staying solid and clear on what we believe. And so we did this uh, exercise together. We'd read a chapter about the Bible and what it is and, and how it serves us and what God reveals to us. And uh, we did this exercise where we, we broke really beliefs and convictions into four specific categories. So uh, we looked first at essentials, then distinctives, secondary differences, and then preferences. Now here's the difference in each one of these. Essentials are the things that we absolutely have to have right. Like to get away from any one of these essentials is to depart and walk away from biblically orthodox Christianity. Like when we walk away from these things, we are starting to lose the integrity of the gospel, the integrity of the church. We're losing uh, faithful Christian belief and practice for, for centuries. And so that's what we're walking away from. And so uh, these are things like the doctrines of uh, infallibility, inspiration, biblical inerrancy. We hold on to that with a closed fist. Uh, the doctrine of the virgin birth, the doctrines of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like Jesus did not sin. We cannot lose that. Uh, he was fully God and fully man. We have to have that. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, one God who eternally exists three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have to have that. A biblical definition of marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman because marriage is a display of the gospel. It's a display of Christ who is the groom and the church who is his bride. And so when we lose that, we distort the gospel. We need the sanctity and the dignity of human life because all of human life bears the image of God. So all of life from womb to tomb is to be cherished and valued and protected. And so we, we have to hold on to these things because when we lose any one of those, we are now departing biblically orthodox Christianity. I'm no longer a faithful pastor. We're no longer a faithful church if we start to lose these things. Then from essentials, we move into distinctives. Now a distinctive is gonna be something we as a congregation will hold on to very tightly, more unique to our identity, but we recognize there may be believers from other traditions who might see things a little bit differently. And there are areas that we believe with other congregations we could faithfully agree to 
to disagree. So one of those distinctives for us is believer's baptism by immersion. That's the video that we celebrated earlier. We believe the New Testament is clear uh, that baptism is, it's not a work that saves us, but it is the work we do to show that we've been saved. And it's something that we do after we have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone who's baptized in the New Testament was capable of hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, understanding the gospel, and then they publicly profess that faith through baptism. And the mode of baptism we embrace is by immersion because the word baptize means to immerse. Not playing tricks, this is what the word means. And so to us, that's clear. And we champion and uphold that as a church. And yet uh, we know that there are Anglican, Presbyterian, Reformed, mainline brothers and sisters in Christ who see, who see things differently on baptism. Listen, we don't think they're heretics. We just think they're wrong. And praise God, like they think we're wrong too. Like I've got friends on both sides of this. And when we get together, it always results in one of us telling the other that we're wrong about baptism. And it's awesome. It's, it's faithful, beautiful, agree to disagree Christianity that it's possible within the body of believers. That's a distinctive for us. Then uh, from distinctives, we get into secondary differences. These are things that we believe even within the body of Christ, uh, the same believers in the same congregations could agree to disagree. These are gonna be things like the age of the earth, uh, the exact timing of the return of Jesus, the exact nature and availability of the spiritual gifts. We believe that these are matters on which uh, Christians can agree to disagree. Um, and then from uh, secondary differences, we move into preferences. Th these are just little personal things. Okay, the, the type of programs that a church offers, uh, the type of music that we have on Sunday, uh, the way that everybody dresses when we show up, building architecture. And so th this is why I'm laying all that out for you this morning, because in an unhealthy gospel culture, this is how it becomes unhealthy. It's when people obsess over secondary differences and preferences and treat them like essentials. And, and this is the restrictive nature of, of unhealthy fundamentalism, is that the circle is always getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. It's not enough for us to be united in essentials. We gotta be united in essentials and distinctives and secondary differences. There can be no secondary differences and preferences. And if you move away from any one of those, you're, you're departing from the faith, you're anathema. And listen, we do not want to become an anaconda church. And here's what I mean by that. You know what an anaconda does? is it's restricting, it devours people. It gets it in its clutches. And listen, when you're in its clutches, it's very difficult to get out. And what it does is it slowly suffocates you and crushes you and then it devours you. We have to be on guard against this within the body of Christ. We are not gonna waste our time when we have been given one mandate to preach the gospel and make disciples, especially in a world, y'all, where 2 billion people have still not even heard the name of Jesus. We cannot be focusing and obsessing on secondary differences and preferences. So we would just say as a church, listen, if, if that's the stuff that's really gonna get you bent out of shape, like you might, you might have a hard time here because that's just not where we're gonna allow our time to be spent. And so we have to be so careful that we're not being divided over foolish controversies, over non-gospel type issues. And by virtue of that, point 10, Paul shows us here, is that we should ignore divisive people. So when there are those who have an unhealthy appetite for controversy, I mean, they're, they're marked by constant division, always speaking ill of somebody, always criticizing something, always dividing over secondary differences. Here's the pattern biblically. This is part of healthy gospel culture too. You warn the person once and then twice and then have nothing to do with them. And listen, we hear that this morning and our modern sensibilities are like, well, that doesn't sound very loving. Doesn't sound very gracious. Doesn't sound very merciful. And I would just ask you to consider as opposed to what? Letting gossip and division and controversy, unnecessary controversy, just run roughshod through the body and bride of Jesus Christ. 
Listen, that we are to, that the church is called to love and to imitate the grace and mercy of Jesus does not mean that we are called to tolerate sin within the body. Healthy gospel culture dispels of unhealthy people who refuse to acknowledge their sin. And listen, you think Paul's maybe being hard. Paul is, is summarizing here the words of Jesus. Go to Matthew 18. It wasn't some angry prophet that gave us the process for church discipline. That was Jesus. Jesus only uses the word church a couple of times in the gospels. In one of those contexts, it's about how to remove someone who's not a faithful follower of Jesus. And the pattern he gives us is someone sins against you, you go to the person personally. If they refuse to listen, you take someone else with you. If they still refuse to listen, it's then to be brought before the church where we have to say, listen, we can no longer say that this person is a faithful follower of Christ. They're persisting in their sin. They refuse to repent. They refuse to acknowledge the harm that's being caused so we can no longer consider them. And listen, the hope is that they will come to repentance. They'll come to the knowledge of the truth, that they will be restored back to the body. But when the integrity of the gospel and the mission of God's church is being compromised by those with an unhealthy thirst for controversy marked by constant division, it becomes necessary eventually to remove that person from the community. So we ignore divisive people. Last two things Paul shows us here. Uh, we're gonna do 11 and 12 together because they work hand in hand. He shows us 11 that we should be devoted to good works. And he shows us 12 that we should help cases of urgent need. So we're uh, kind of repeating one we saw earlier, we should be ready to do good works, but it's one thing to be ready. It's a very different thing to be devoted. We're not just ready to do good works. We are actually going to follow through on those good works. And by doing this, we're not gonna be unfruitful. We're not gonna be idle as believers. We are going to be eager to respond to cases of urgent need. Our boys uh, have found this documentary that they've fallen in love with. It's called, um, it's called Surviving the Cut and our two oldest boys in particular. And, and this is a documentary, I think it's on Amazon. Um, it's about the hardest schools in the military. And so it's guys, it, it just documents their uh, journey of trying to pass through things like you know, Marine recon and sniper schools and uh, underwater combat divers and uh, SEAL training. And, and their favorite uh, of all these that they've watched up to this point has been uh, on the school for Air Force pararescue jumpers. Now, uh, I, I sat and watched this with them because I'm hooked now just as much as they are. And I was not totally familiar with this, but it's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. What these guys are going to this school to do is uh, an Air Force pararescue jumper is going to do exactly what that title sounds like. They are going to jump behind enemy lines, potentially, and they're going to rescue and attend to someone who's harmed and immobilized. And they're going to do everything that they can to get them out of that scenario. So uh, the documentary, it, it basically shows what, what they call their extended training day. It's the biggest part of their training where um, they're woken up after just a couple of hours of sleep. They don't know that this is coming. And uh, then they're uh, subjected to basically 24 hours of a very intense training that's supposed to simulate a combat environment where need after need after need after need might arise. And so again, uh, they've been sleeping for just a couple of hours. They already had a hard day of training and then the siren goes off. And then within just a couple of minutes, they're all out of their tents. Their uniforms are on, their boots are on. They've got all their equipment on, weapons in hand, and they're standing in formation waiting for their orders. And I just thought, what a picture of what the church of Jesus Christ is called to be. Church, we are called to sleep with our uniforms on. We are called to be prepared, to be ready, and to be devoted to doing good work so that when a brother or a sister falls, we are eager to respond. You know, it's, it's very, very sad to me that I, I think a lot of the perception of the church and our culture today is it's the place you run from when you have, have fallen into sin. 
And sadly, you know, the church is not the place many people are going to run to when they fall into sin, but it is the calling of the body of Christ to run to others when they have fallen into sin. When there's urgent needs, that we're eager and we're ready and we're prepared. And so I want to close with, with this verse this morning uh, from James 1, 27. This isn't in your notes, but the Lord really just actually just laid there, excuse me, James 5, uh, 19 and 20. The Lord just laid this on my heart even after the first service. Because I, I think this is such a powerful, underrated picture of what the church is called to do what this means to be people who are responding to urgent need. James closes out his letter, verses 19 and 20, by saying, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, listen to this, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What a calling for us as the body of Christ. Why do we run after others? Why do we devote ourselves to good works? Why do we run to meet cases of urgent need? This goes all the way back to Titus 1, because this is what Jesus did for you and me. In our moment of greatest need, when we were immobilized, when we were dead in our sins, and listen, even more than that, we were his enemies. He still jumped into enemy territory. The word became flesh. He came and lived among us. He became our sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus did for us. It's great if you know theology and doctrine in your heads. I just want to ask us to consider this morning as we close this out. Do you believe it in your heart? Are you living it in your hands? Are we not just individually, but collectively as a body? Are we a culture that reflects the doctrine that we preach? And so as we, we close together our time uh, here this morning, we just bow your heads with me as we, we wrap up here. We're going to come to the table for the Lord's Supper in just a moment. It's a very simple reflection before we respond today. We've seen a number of very clear directives from God's word this morning of who we're called to be as a healthy gospel-centered church, a church that's preaching the gospel and a church that's living the gospel. And I just ask you to consider this morning, where are you not living the gospel? Where this morning have you maybe seen that your heart is out of step, it's out of line, it's out of check with what the Lord's revealed in his word? And before we come to the table, we come to him in confession of sin, repentance of that sin. And so fathers, we do respond as we close this morning. We ask that you would reveal to us the patterns of inconsistency in our lives. Show us, Lord, reveal to us by the light of your word where we are out of step with who you've called us to be. Help us to come before you in confession of our sin and repentance that we could become who you've called us to become, that we would live the way you've called us to live. Lord, let the story and the testimony of this church family be not just that we preach the gospel, but that we live the gospel. Let the testimony be that we are not just preaching a good message, Lord, but we're living sound lives that are in step with who you've called us to be. So, Father, we surrender that to you this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would be glorified, Father, now as we confess, as we repent, as we respond today. Let it all be a sweet aroma and fragrance to you. Be delighted in the praises of your people as we elevate the glory of your name. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Amen.